This is the Black Creative Handbook with your host Cassandra Lauren Gordon. This podcast will help to inspire, motivate and give that blueprint, the manual for success for people in the creative businesses, for people from the African and Black diaspora to help us just move along, get that bag, and no more starving artist syndrome. No, out the door. Co-work with us. Be with us and be successful and get the gems. You might have heard in the podcast or you're going to hear it soon that this was called the Creative For You podcast. Don't worry about that. It's Creative For You. Let's be successful and be positive. This is the Creative For You podcast with your host, Cassandra Lauren Gordon, and I am here with... Brianna Fagado. Yay! So, Brianna, tell us about yourself. So, my name's Brianna. I'm a creative producer, creative director, co-director based in Edinburgh. I wear many hats, um, and a lot of my work is based around supporting businesses, organizations in the creative industries that um, are social enterprises, community-led, Black-led, queer-led. And I got onto this work because I came to Scotland and came to Edinburgh in 2010 with the intention of getting into sustainable development and international relations. I was really into, well, helping to solve the climate crisis. I love travel, love politics, but what I'm really interested in is power and how do we organize ourselves in society? How do we work together? And I really feel that the creative industries is the place where people collaborate, work in new ways, are really creative, obviously, but in the sense of being really resilient, being able to live with discomfort, look at things differently. So for me, working in the creative industries was intentional because I was creative when I was younger. Uh, I painted, I was in an all-girl punk rock band. I danced my whole life. My mom danced, my grandpa was an actor, but none of them pursued it professionally, especially as Black people living in the United States. You know, they really took different career paths. So I've always been creative and encouraged by my family. But I think for me, the thing that I love about the creative industries, especially in Scotland, is just seeing how there's so many different ways of working and people distribute power, share it and make incredible things happen in really beautiful ways. So, yes, currently I'm the creative director of Fringe of Colour Film Festival and I'm the director of an organisation called We Are Here Scotland, which is a community interest company that's a platform to amplify Black and POC creatives in Scotland. Yeah, because that's how I think I found out about you uh, because of that organisation. I can see that you actively doing things. So could you talk a bit more about that, um, that organisation? So We Are Here Scotland was set up by Ica Headlam in... 2019, I believe, towards the end of 20 or start of 2020. And he's based in Aberdeen. And Aika is a social worker, a graphic designer, and designs all sorts of things and is living in a part of the country that's far up north. It's diverse because there are a lot of people of color there because of the oil industry, actually. But I think Aika started this podcast called Creative Me Podcast and was interviewing people from across the country. And given everything that kicked off with Black Lives Matter activism and protests and the death and murder of George Floyd, 
I really think that Aika was feeling so frustrated about how tokenistic uh, the creative industries and people were about finding black voices and POC voices. And he was like, you know, forget it. You know, we're here. He set up this platform. It started as an Instagram account. He set up a GoFundMe for a black creators fund. And it just grew from there. And it got to the point that in January last year, well, 2020, or sorry, January of 2021, he approached me to say, Hey, I've been following your career and your work for years. How would you feel about joining us as co-director? And it was around that time I applied for the role of creative director of Fringe of Color and got the role as creative director there. So it was really interesting for me this year to shift into working in only Black-led organizations and queer organizations. And it's been so fulfilling, but also so important for me, especially existing in really white institutions and spaces for the entirety of my career. Uh, to be around not only people that look like me and supporting work of people that look like me, but not having to constantly justify my existence or deal with constant racism or ageism or misogyny. So it's been really incredible. But yes, We Are Here Scotland is, is kind of building a database, building a community, trying to amplify and platform those voices. Because I know so many of us in the aftermath of Black Lives Matter hitting white collective consciousness have been DM'd every other day going, do you know a Black creative? And it's like the emotional labor and the capacity that we need to either ignore or respond to these requests is so huge that I'm really happy that We Are Here exists to direct people towards We Are Here for that information. Absolutely. So I think there's like a common a commonality I think what I share with you and your co-founder from last year when I was doing stuff for black jewelers it was like all of a sudden I was the poster child of black jewelers I can't speak for every black jeweler in the world and it was just the lack of like if they talk to me that absolved them from any responsibility if they mentioned me in a press release or tweeted me or or you know reposted something that just made that look like that they did they were anti-racist. And I was like, nope, 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 um, nope. Don't do no. that. Don't add my name in unless you're going to do something. Don't do that because I'm a very small, you know, creative and you're just trying to look, make yourself look bad. So there's a lot of virtue signaling. And I wrote a, um, an open letter again, one year after when I wrote my previous um, open letter, just saying like, this is all nice. Thank you for the people who are doing stuff, but there was a lot of virtue signaling and it shows now a year a year later. So the people who are silent, who's doing all the black squares and, oh, what about me? What can I do? Cassandra, what can I do? And you're quiet a year later. It just shows who you are. So Yeah. But don't want to be on a downer, but because no. there's people who just carry on and they are really great people from all different ethnicity, you know, white, whoever, POC, whatever from background, who have, kept their promises and they have you know really kept up that the anti-rate is practice and it is a practice you can't just do it once so um mm. on a high note let's talk about the fringe of color festival how yeah. that was how was it birthed and how did you get into it so Jess Brough is our founder and technical director. And for Fringe 2018, they were in Edinburgh doing their PhD or maybe their, their master's at that point. And they went to the Fringe 
and were looking around and just thought to themselves, you know, where are all the black shows? Where are all the POC shows? And they'd go to them and then see the audiences were predominantly white. And then the reviews that came out about the shows just missed the mark about what the shows were about. And I think for them, they they thought to themselves, actually, look, this festival is supposed to be the most international arts festival in the world that's been running for 70 years, supposed to be diverse, supposed to be uh, for anyone, all walks of life, and it's very white. And so they basically created a spreadsheet and listed every single show by produced, directed, written, acted in by a black or well person of color and took it to the fringe and said look these are all of your shows black people and people of color need to see these shows so they went to the fringe set up a ticket free ticket scheme and actually got people that wouldn't normally go to the fringe or feel it was for them to see these shows and then thankfully that white gaze and that perspective was diluted Mm. and after that Uh, So that was 2018 and 2019. They did the same. 2020 rolled around. Obviously, we had the global pandemic. And of course, it was Black and POC artists and performers that were losing money and work so drastically. So they sort of decided, look, I still want money in the pockets of Black and POC creatives that can come up to Edinburgh for the festival. How about I set up a film festival. So they decided to set up this film festival. It was the first time they'd done it. Uh, I think it was 50 films that were shown from all over the world. Uh, Artists got commissions. But the thing about it is that it's an online arts festival. So artists actually weren't necessarily filmmakers. It was about commissioning all types of work, comedians, dancers, spoken word artists, storytellers, people from very different backgrounds and creative disciplines and practices because it was supposed to be, and it is, a fringe festival. And this year they decided to do it again, Um, brought me on board as creative director. And the key thing about the festival as well, back to the white gaze and back to making sure that this festival is for people of color um, and that gaze that lens is how people see the work yes Jess introduced this whole idea of responses so it was other people of color that watched the films wrote a response and not a review because these responses were very much about what are people's lived experiences of the themes in this film or this piece of work how does this speak to wider things and so many of the artists that I've spoken to Mm. since that had their films shown and that had a response written said you know what It wasn't until I read the response to my film that I finally got this festival to be so deeply seen and heard and understood and for someone to pick up on what I'm trying to do and to think that it's important, to think it's valid, was so validating and confirming. Mm. And, you know, they said, "I, I now really understand why Jess did this. So that was the ethos and that is the belief behind the festival and why it's so important. But also the festival, you know, exists out with the current systems and structures that exist. You know, the festival is crowdfunded. We get some funding from, you know, other anti-racist organizations or queer organizations that want to support us. But the financial sustainability of doing this festival in a way that means we don't have to rely on any institutions is really important. Mm -hmm. And also the fact that it's about reinvesting in our communities. Wow. Crowdfunding. It just seems like it just, it just seems like a lot. It just seems like, you know, addressing these, you know, systematic issues is always seems to be the black, the people of colour always have to do the heavy lifting. 
just give you the money, man. Just give you the money. <laughs> because you guys, because everyone wants to put their name like we like supported this and da da da, but you're not putting money. And I don't want this is a personal view. Sorry out there, listeners and these this contra kind of in kind stuff. Yeah, but put the money in it. Just give just give the money. That is sustainability, and you and you commit to it for a, for a period of time. But that's exactly. just my personal view. People might say Cassandra being too harsh, but you know I've seen. I don't think you are overnight over with COVID, and you found the money. COVID's different. I don't want no conspiracy theories come come after me. But the world changed overnight. People could change when they want to, and I feel that race has been overstudied for a very long piece of time. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. We can do 10 million reports and people are like, oh, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I don't know. I am middle class white person. I don't know what to do. My life, my life. I'm like, there is Google. You have friends. You probably live in a a metropolitan area. If you don't live in a metropolitan area, that's fine. You have Google. You have Netflix. Figure it out. But people say to me, but Cassandra, everyone is at different journeys. And just like my ancestors has been on different journeys too. So, you know, I mean, it is what it is. I feel like today I'm just like, you know what it is. But I need to just learn how to be more emotionally detached to certain things. So that's what I have to be on. Because, you know, when I'm talking about Black things or talking about diversity, inclusion, people of colour or anything, gender, anything with diversity, inclusion, I'm very passionate about it. I, I can't do... I can't do half half. I can't do yeah, and then but I have to. But I think for sustainability and for me to just you know feel a bit human, I have to learn how to manage my expectations and my um and my passion because it it can be very very draining. I I hear you, but I also you know, and that's that's completely your decision how you kind of manage that but I also think you know we live in a world capitalist patriarchal white supremacist society for in the western world but the whole world in a lot of ways that you know tries to dehumanize us by telling us we're too emotional we're too passionate we're too emotionally attached and it's like well part of being human is having emotions and the full range of them you know that's part of the human existence and we have, as humankind, have suffered so much through trauma, whether or not it's wars, whether or not it's racism, whatever it is. And actually, I think if we brought more emotions, empathy, compassion, feeling into our organizations, workplaces, creative spaces, we wouldn't be in the situations that we're in now. Because I think we've spent so much time almost equating being professional with having no feelings. And actually, no, it's the organizations that are feeling-led, empathy-led, yeah, okay, that are also logical, rational, all sorts of things, but are intuitive and collaborative and collective and welcome people's emotions and feelings that actually are going to lead us to more sustainable ways of living in the future. So I hear you, but I also hear that and think to myself, yes, to survive, we all have to do what we have to do in this world. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I really would like to see change in organizations and those that are actually the most progressive or at the forefront of what they're doing or led by those that are marginalized take those values in it's like actually it's our emotions that are our strength you know anger or passion or whatever teaches us something and one of my favorite quotes I don't know who said it because you know on the internet with Instagram with memes uh, these things get lost but there's a quote about uh, anger being an important emotion because it shows you where your boundaries have been crossed Mm. and you know either by someone by something and I I really 
relate to that in the sense of I now just kind of lean into that and go, okay, why am I feeling angry? Am I being pushed out out with my, my boundaries, my energy levels? Is someone disrespecting me? Is a situation disrespecting me? But I hear you because I'm now speaking from a position of having the privilege of working in black and POC majority completely led organizations. What's the difference? And- Tell me, enlighten me of, of this new, like, cause I, I don't know. I don't know. Tell me what's, what, 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 I think the, I'm noticing a couple of things. The biggest thing I'm noticing is that, you know, their trauma and care led. So like I, and it depends on the people you're working with, regardless of their, of their race, their ethnicity, but there's this assumption that, you know, we're all dealing with emotional labor and we're all tired. So the conversations that happen are often about checking in about emotions, about capacity, about what's going on at home, what's going on at work, you know, what's going on in the news. You know, we will have conversations in a week where it's like, actually the race reports just come out. We're all exhausted. So we're going to take it slower this week or we're going to work less hours. And so it's just that solidarity and collective approach to things where it's like, you don't have to worry about masking things. I mean, obviously you share what you want, but you don't have to worry about masking things because everyone's coming from the same place of like, the world is really tiring right now. Okay, what can we do in our organizations to empower, to support, to help each other? But how are we going to be more reflective, careful, kind to each other in this workplace when we're surviving in a world that is... um, how do I want to word this? Surviving in a world that is oppressive to us. So I've just noticed that that is the starting point rather than in other workplaces, it's completely ignored. No one's checking in on you. They don't even think about how it might impact you. They expect you to overperform because you're the minority. And I'm careful about playing into these stereotypes, right? Because I have been the first black woman in a lot of spaces and throughout my time living in Scotland and workplaces. And I think people have been sensitive, but you know, they just don't think because they don't have the lived experience and, you know, also the way that they might handle conflict or situations um, is very defensive at times. So I'm just finding it's a very different way of working. Okay, it's a different type of work. Okay, so I would love to be in part of those organizations. <laughs> um, I feel like sometimes it's just like I go to counseling, right? And I remember when I had a white counselor, I had a Mexican counselor, I had an Asian, you know what I mean? Asian, I mean, I think she was from South Asian. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if she was Indian or Bangladeshi. Mm-hmm. So I had POC counselors and I had white counselors and all different types of counselors, white women, black women, whatever, white white man, black man, so on. And, you know, not saying white counselors are bad, and some of them really helped me through certain times, but it was just the ease of talking to a black counselor. Even with a Mexican counselor and a POC, um, an Asian counselor, it was just like, I was saying something and they just they didn't get it. And it's, I'm not trying to promote racial hierarchy, because sometimes mm. when, in my experience, when we're talking about Asian people in the UK, Asian meaning South Asian. Um, sometimes we, oh yeah, but they don't have racism. Like, of course they do. You know, there's there are certain things, but there's a certain type of racism and disproportionality when I'm talking about black people. And I just, you know, sometimes I feel very apologetic, always have to give a statement, but sometimes you just got to talk about black people sometimes. Sometimes just give it one little time, talk about it. And awesome. that's where I'm, that's where I am in, in, in my life. Happy POC or by but by park, but sometimes mm. I just need to highlight what my people's going through. 
Well, we know this because anti-blackness exists in everywhere. You know, it exists in the Asian Asian community. It exists in so many different communities, but we are also seeing a rise of anti-Asian hate. So, you know, it's kind of like we need to be, it is important to be specific because that racial hierarchy that, you know, unfortunately does exist because of colorism and proximity to whiteness, you know, the closer you are to whiteness, uh, the more allowances, affordances, less oppression you might experience. So I think that's fair. And I think it's just honest about the reality of the situation. I'm not saying we need to compete with each other. Um, You know, it is about combating how you know, white supremacy and racism impacts everyone. Um, it doesn't help anyone. It doesn't help white people. You know, it, it's just not good. But back to what you said there, yes, yeah, sometimes you do have to highlight a certain community because there is anti-Blackness in a lot of communities that are POC as well. There you go. So it's not, I'm an anti, I'm very, you know, I have a lot of compassion for my anti I mean, for the Asian um, community, when I'm Asian, I've, I don't know how to describe it. Maybe you probably have a better word, but the people who are from like the East, the far, not far East, but you know what I mean? From China, Korea, mm-hmm. Japan. Asian, Southeast Asian. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Those, those, yeah. those, those ones. Cause I think in America, they see Asian different the way how we see. In America, we tend yeah. to see Asian. I don't know. I haven't lived in the States for about 11 years, but I think when we say Asian, we tend to mean Far East. Far East, yeah. 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 Cool. No, it was really good to explain different things and from your background, how you're getting things. So it just seems like grassroots seems to lead the way, isn't it? Grassroots seems to lead the way. Um, yeah. Think, you know, you don't have people pressuring you and stuff like that, which is really, really good. I so, think it's good, but I also think there's sometimes a trade-off when things are grassroots, because you were asking about how I got into producing. Sometimes what happens, I find, is, you know, I am I love social enterprise grassroots and entrepreneurial communities, but people are learning on the job, learning as they go, building themselves up, making mistakes. You know, a lot of the entrepreneurial world talks about fail fast and, you know, all this jargon that they use to talk about how you build a business quickly and learn, learn through your mistakes. And the one thing I think that's so incredible about the creative industries and creative communities Failure is part of the process. Failure is just the creative process. I don't even know if people call it failure. It's not failure. It's just, you know, something you have to work around or it's just a beautiful thing you created that wasn't what you thought it was going to be. But that whole notion of failure is a very like private sector, third sector. We need to reach an outcome when it's like, well, creatives are often depending on their practice and discipline, not linear. It's like you make a thing and then it takes you somewhere else. But what I do love about grassroots and creative communities and social enterprise communities is yeah people just make things work with limited resources and get on with it and collaborate and share and help one another I do think the flip side though is because these communities and sectors are so underfunded sometimes and are really trying to find ways to generate money generate income be sustainable skill sets can really vary right because a lot of people can't afford to stay working in the creative industries or the third sector because they need financial stability or they want to have some kind of security. So I think what can happen is skills that we really need in the arts and creative industries, we can lose because they go to other sectors. And I think the challenge can be then is like, how do we keep all of these organizations, initiatives, grassroots things sustainable when we maybe don't have the skills, resources, time, money, energy? So I think it's a trade-off and I think it's a balance. There's so, so much beauty to it. 
but I've been in the third sector or social enterprise charity sector and the creative industries my entire career. And it's a constant balance where I'm like, okay, I'm not making as much as I could. I have to think about my paying my rent. It's a balance of projects, you know, and so the trade-off is I might be doing what I love with people I respect and having a great impact, but there's a personal cost to that too definitely hear you about the personal cost you know you know you have to you know there's that thing like when you go into the plane where you you know they say you know you need your oxygen mask you know you got to put on first before you can help others you know yeah uh, can get burnt out so yeah thank you for explaining that so we talked about your background how you got into creative producing but I was before on recording I was saying like I always like, you know, creative producing, but when I was applied, used to apply for jobs and stuff, even where I'm a jeweler, I used to apply for jobs. You don't have the experience, you need to have X amount of experience before you can be a producer. And, you know, and I think it's all about connections and stuff like that. So how does someone get into creative producing or creative directing? I got into it because I set up my own thing. And I know that that's a strange starting point because not everyone can do that. It's not it's not something that everyone feels confident doing. But essentially what happened is my fourth year of university, I ran for president of the Students Association of Edinburgh University. I was elected. I worked, I worked hard to win. I had run the year before. I'd been involved in student politics throughout my time at uni because of uh, you know, changes to fees for international students, for, you know, English students going to Scotland, uh, the hostile environment policy of the home office. As an international student, I was really impacted by that and I was mad. So I did a lot of work campaigning around that. So I, I was elected president of the Students Association in 2014. I missed being creative. I wasn't studying anything creative. I didn't have access to a studio or to paints. Or I remember going to the art college and asking if I could take an outside course there. And they were like, no, that, you know, who do you think you are? It doesn't work that way. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and so what happened is I wanted to create a platform for myself and for other people that were facing barriers to being creative and being artists and sharing their work, to be able to share that with each other through a festival. And so back to your question about creative producing, I've always been someone since I was little that likes planning. I like hosting people. I like hosting dinner parties, having events. I like the details of it. I like having a vision for something and making it happen. And I think those skills of you know being able to plan things, organize people, organize objects, think about event management, Those are all the skills that a creative producer needs because there are so many things that require you to just, you know, roll your sleeves up and do it. And it can be everything from raising money to pitching an idea to someone to support it, to finding people, you know, to be involved. And I think all of those skills were skills that I developed in so many different ways through volunteering, through running events, through, you know, working with people. But I didn't really intend to set up and run a festival. It happened because... I had the opportunity to do it. I spoke to a lot of people about what would a mini fringe festival for students look like. I had access to people that would fund it. And I know that's not everyone's path. I had a lot of access and privilege in that sense. But what I would say for someone wanting to get into creative producing, if you can, I know that pay is important. So if you can get an apprenticeship, if you can, I got my first producing job after university, though as student president, it was a full-time paid salaried role for a year. By actually approaching an arts organization I really respected, it was called Creative Edinburgh, I went to the director and emailed them one day because, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get. All they can do is say no. And I said, look, do you need any help? 
I can run events. I can help you with your annual award ceremony. You know, do you need any freelance help? And they said, actually, we've just lost our other member of staff. I do need someone to help produce our annual award ceremony. And I think it's just from having so many different experiences of freelancing, of asking for if people needed support that I built up my work experience. But yes, it's not straightforward. It is about networking. A lot of these roles are not advertised and when they are, it's so competitive to apply for them. So I think sometimes it's about how can you create pockets of creative producing or creative directing and what you do, you know, looking at you producing this podcast, Cassandra, you're producing and you're a creative producer doing that. So I think it's actually, a yeah. And I feel like (laughs) that word producer is so overused, right? Everyone's a creative producer these days. Like, what does it mean? And I'm not saying it's lost its meaning, but I just mean that you can make creative producing many things and there are many skills you can pull into it to kind of build up your experience. And there are certain things you might not realize you're good at Oh, you know, managing a budget, which is so important. Um, Being able to promote something, being able to speak to people about what you're doing. Those are key skills of a producer to really, and I don't like to use this word, but to really pitch and sell what you're doing to people that are all part of it. So I think actually it's taking a step back and looking at what skills do I have that actually make me a producer already. That's such good. I'm writing these down because I'm like, I need to really, really evaluate my life. So about being a producer <laughs> and things, you know, especially creative content and you're creating content and stuff like that. Okay. So that's, so I'm just thinking about barriers because I was chatting to a friend yesterday. Uh, I might not say who she is, but she's a person of colour. Um, she's from Colombia and she was having a lot of self-doubt being creative and what she wants to, to do. And I'm just thinking, I just couldn't understand it because she's so talented. And I'm just thinking in your experience or where you see other people in in your platform, what are like two main barriers you think uh, people of colour might have of being um, like creative or uh, making a living from a creative um, pathway? I think imposter syndrome comes up a lot that, you know, self-doubt and denial. And again, I'm such a millennial referencing memes, but uh, I read this post the other day that said, Is it imposter syndrome and self-doubt or are you a person of color trying to exist in a world that doesn't want you to succeed? And I really thought about that for a second because all the times that I've had self-doubt of, oh, I'm in this huge job. Can I really do this? Or, oh, now I have the title of creative director. What does that mean? You know, like every time I've stepped into something, it has been a challenge for me. I haven't known what I'm doing. And I know so many artists and creative people that say, when in doubt, Google it. I mean, the amount of people that have told me Google's their best friend when they're starting a project that they feel is too big for them. But if you've been offered it and you've taken it on, you can do it. And I think that that just comfort and knowing that everyone has doubts in life all the time. And actually, that's part of the fun. I know this sounds weird. But that's part of the fun of being creative. You know, you don't know what's coming around the corner every five seconds. You don't know what's going to happen. That's part of the creative process. So I would say it's that self-doubt. But how do you actually flip that on its head and go, this doubt is part of the creative process. And actually this makes me creative. And the fact that I'm not completely confident about this means I have some humility and space to learn and to grow and to make mistakes and to experiment. So I think that's a, that's a positive thing. The second barrier I would say is probably 
yeah, financial sustainability. You know, we're in a situation where our sector and industry has lost 70% of its income overnight. And it's growing and it's coming back and it's returning. But what I really notice is people don't ask to be compensated and paid for what they're worth. And I know I it's do. A- and I get I get in trouble because people think like, how dare I? Like, I, sorry, I had to jump in. Go for it. Go it's for just it. it's just the audacity. That they would not go to. I'm not trying to say they wouldn't even think of asking a white male. Yep. yep. They would not. And I'm not trying to say white on black. I'm not trying to to create a. But I'm it's true. Just, I'm just. I'm not saying it just to be on the bandwagon of saying, well, black people this and black people that because I feel like I live in a very tricky world where I'm like I'm trying to fight oppression. But a lot of people helping me are white people, more than actually black people. So I'm just going to put it out there. I'm sorry. Got to cost everybody equal opportunities. But white allies need to hear this. You know, the fact that we are always questioned or always have to justify our rates, that feeds into that doubt and back into that quote I was saying about, is it self-doubt or is it actually a world that is telling you that you shouldn't be there? You know what I mean? So I hear that because... I, the best piece of advice I was given is say your rate and then be quiet because you will talk yourself out of it because you're so used to having to justify why that's your rate and you know why it's that much, why, and you know, I think as well that as we know, your rate isn't just the number of hours you're putting into something. It's your past experience, your expertise, how quickly you do it, the amount of time you have to research something and yeah, say your rate and then I just wrote that down, that, like... That should be my quote. Say your say your rate and be and quiet. be quiet. <laughs> yeah, why not? Say your rate and be quiet. Um, no, seriously, because you know, doing the black jewelers, I wrote a whole big report, and it just it's just it's just people just expect free labor all the time. I don't mind they doing do. it then. I don't and I don't realize like when you're tapping in into black people, it's it's their expertise. Yeah. When when you go to a scientist, you expect to pay for the expertise and and a lawyer and any other accountant, anything else. So why is it different for us? Yeah, I I have really over the last few months because when things kicked off last year, it wasn't this bad. But a year on and over the last few months, I am floored by the audacity of people sliding into my DMs, going, "Do you know someone? Do you would you have a minute to look at this? Would you join this free board and donate your time, even though you already sit on three? You know." Just this expectation that like, I'm just going to do it for free. I'll do the favor for free. And it's like, what? where do you, I know they don't mean to, I know they think they're being helpful or they think they're reaching into communities or reaching out to communities they don't normally work with. But it's like, everyone knows this is my job. It's not even like I'm a black person who works in finance and they're just happening to ask me if I know any creatives that are black. No, this is my actual job. So the audacity that people have to just, can you promote this for free? Can you find someone for me? It's like, you have Google, you can do that research. It's a laziness and it's an expectation that I should be honored. I should be so honored and floored that they would even think to ask me. And it's like, no, pay me for this time. But, but it's not, but for me, yeah, the pay is, it's just a symbol of re- respect. And it the is. second thing is about prioritization for me. So if I'm doing all this free stuff, like, for instance, like, if I'm in a jeweler and I've got a commission I've got to do order, I have to prioritise that because I've got customers and I've got dinner. So if you pay me, or even pay me a certain or a stipend or an honorarium or certain, or pay for my travel, certain, A, you're showing me respect. And, yeah. you know, for you know, as a person who specialises in this, 
and B, is it just A? A and B, you help me to prioritize. Yeah. And that thing will get done. And yep. it makes it sustainable. So yep. people think, oh, it's about the pay, they're trying to profit. It's not about profit for me or because it's you know, for anyone, it is respect. Profit. You're right. It's about respect and prioritization. It's about sustainability. If I don't prioritize, if if it's free, it's going to go way down my list because I need to get paid, and I don't have rich husbands and I don't have rich people in my exactly. life. Exactly. I don't have exactly. gen- I don't have generational wealth. I don't have a house. We're waiting for Nana to die, and I'm going to get the house. Okay, or my yep. bills going to get paid. You know what I mean? I have to survive. Um, yep. I'm not saying about white people don't have that either, because I know people in the, you know working class, you know all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, yeah, just pay the people. I hear you. And it's exactly that. And it is more about the prioritization. You've said that so well, the prioritization and the respect, because it just feels so disrespectful that the assumption is, yeah, you'll just do this. We're not, we don't know each other. We're not pals. We're not mates. That's different. But I'm talking about someone from an organization that's trying to do work with black people that slides into my DMs. Hey, can you just look at this proposal and suggest some people? Literally, are you going to compensate me for the time I lose choosing to do that over the paid work I need to pay my rent? Exactly. It's, it's a tricky thing because, like, last year, like, I really want to help. Like, last year, I was like, I didn't mind to sense check, but it was just getting very overwhelming. And actually, after, and I know people might think I'm a bit abrupt, but I have to be, I had to be this, whatever you want to call me, angry black woman, whatever. Obviously, I'm nice and I'm very respectful. I don't bark at people, but it's just like, I had to be like, no, can't do that. Sorry, no, not be in a chair. No, can't do that. No, no, um, do you want my day rate? No, mm, no, because it was just a lot. And um, look what happened now, a year, a, a year now. Where, 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 where are you? Where are you? But what about the emotional labor of engaging with something potentially distressing? I know people don't like the word triggering because it's so overused, but distressing, exhausting, traumatic, and that whole mad black woman thing is just, you know, that's racism rearing its head because if you're just being curt or direct and you were anyone else, would it be seen as you being a mad black woman? It's professional. You know, it's professional. You know, all those kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm trying to figure out how to turn this into positive. I'm trying to, because I know. I think the positive is that if people just listen to this conversation and think before they act and also think about, all of the beautiful things about being a person of color in this world and having a different perspective and a different lived experience and having so much to bring to the table. And actually, yeah, maybe being more, if you can, I know it's about being able to survive too, but I'm, as I've gotten older in my freelance career, you know, I've been able to make more informed decisions about not just taking any work that comes to me. And you have to hold your nerve because turning down work when there's no other work coming in is scary. But actually, if it doesn't pay you well enough, if you don't feel respected, if it's too bitty, actually, excuse me, actually, sometimes, you know, holding out, waiting for a bigger piece of work, negotiating with with someone and people that you respect often reaps further benefits because you're not dealing with the pain of taking a small piece of work and actually it's a lot of stress or it's more hours than you agreed. And so back to this conversation about um, being asked to help or contribute and further this conversation and hopefully this change and anti-racist practice, actually it's, okay, maybe I am overwhelmed or people are coming to me to request all these things and I have to be really discerning about what I choose. 
that can turn into something really beautiful of working on some great projects with some great people that are actually committed to doing the work are going to follow through are going to respect you and that's something really beautiful so I think there is a positive in it okay so yeah I'm I'm just thinking like because I hear it and you're right but I'm thinking when I'm in that that kind of not of a of abundance of like that of that scarcity I'm just trying to think of myself like know my worth you know know my worth and sometimes we have to do what we have to do and that's the reality of having to survive having to eat having to pay rent and I hear that and I think you know it's a trial and error and it's not going to be that you do the work that you love doing with the people you love doing it all the time because that's not always possible but is there a better balance to strike maybe Okay, I get you. Okay, cool. All right. So it's about networking, putting yourself out there. Could you just talk about just how do people put themselves out there and not feel that imposter syndrome? Because that's what I've just I'm just thinking about a conversation I had I had with that with with my Colombian friend, and she just like she made her list. She just feels even though she made her list, she does her strategy of like who she's going to contact. She feels like she just feels like so doubtful or self doubt. So any tips and just like Invo, you might be introverted. What can you do? So my best tip is finding ways to network in community. I really loved Creative Mornings, which is an international free breakfast series for creatives that I used to be involved with and go to in Edinburgh. And there's one in a lot of cities all over the world. Um, also looking creative mornings oh, uh, there's another one there's some creative networks i mean in scotland we have creative edinburgh creative sterling creative dundee i'm sure there there's creative cardiff i know there's the sheffield creative guild so there's some other creative organizations that are for introverted creatives to meet each other and that's less threatening because you're not kind of cold calling or just emailing someone you're going to a place where other people are nervous about meeting each other and are also creative so i think that's a great example Another great organization I really rate is called The Collective, which was set up by Hannah Taylor, who runs The Delicate Rebellion. And that's a network of, I mean, you can just engage on Insta. You don't have to pay for anything or go to anything. It's just a network of women in the creative industries that are supporting each other, sharing tips, tools, et cetera. So I've really found, even though I'm really social and I'm quite an extroverted person, I am an introvert. I like being at home. I get my energy recharging by myself. I like to be by myself. (laughs) And I spend so much time talking to other people and supporting other people. So I hear that and I get that. And that's why I think going to places and just go on Eventbrite and Google networking events for creatives. There are probably lots of people running these things for free online virtually and then later back to in real life where actually that's where you can dip your toe in the water rather than really putting yourself out there with someone you really don't know I get why that's really intimidating understood understood okay I'm writing all these great tips down um so you put yourself out there you do all of that I'm just thinking about you're wearing a bit of jewellery and as a jeweller I always ask people about their jewellery so you know what is your relationship with jewellery I see you wearing a, a bit of silver for the people who can't yeah. see certainly listening to audio can you describe your your jewellery so I'm wearing four pieces of jewellery so the earrings I'm wearing are by a local Edinburgh based sustainable silversmith called Ackville Sue and she designs 
jewelry that's genderless and from sustainable silver and materials. I'm wearing another ring, I think by, oh goodness, something in Baird, beer in Baird. I'll look. Baird is in like a a Baird, the Scottish version of that word. (laughs) This is a ring that is cast silver and it's a branch from a tree in Edinburgh that the silversmith cast in silver and it's also recycled silver and then I'm wearing two rings one from a designer and company based in Vancouver called uh, Wolf Circus and they also do semi-precious recycled silver work and this ring is Matthew Calvin and he's London based Um, I really love independent jewelry makers independent anything creatives so I try and always support and invest and spend money locally um but I'm a definitely a silver girl I have some gold and I have other colors but I, I really like silver so it seems that sustainability really means a lot to you um in your practice could you tell me more about that guess your values around sustainability yes so for me sustainability is so many things because We often think about sustainability as CO2 emissions or the climate crisis and, you know, global warming or the acidification of the oceans, the coral reef dying, plastic pollution, um, you know, waste, all of these things that are very physical. But I think about sustainability in the sense of all those things. But what I'm more concerned about is sustainability in terms of the best way to put it is capitalism, right? It's like we live in a capitalist society that is making us really unwell. You know, we're competing with each other. We're overworked. We're we're living with scarcity. And yes, we have limited resources, but we don't have to be living in this way. And I'm really more interested in sustainability from the perspective of how are people treated? Are they fairly paid? Is their mental health respected in the workplace? How are we treating our environment and the planet and the resources that we're living in? Are we spending enough time in nature? But really, when it comes down to my practice and sustainability, I'm interested in business models, organizations that are not working for profit only and are furthering the capitalist system. So it's like, Social enterprises that are don't have shareholders, aren't making money for, for a board of people that invest in it, but are reinvesting back into the local community for whatever reason to combat uh, issues of homelessness or period poverty or whatever else it is. That's why I love the creative industries and looking at how people are, are working in different ways using alternative business models. And for me, that's what sustainability is. It's all of those really abstract things that impact us every day but it's also is this organization ethical are the rings that I'm wearing made with materials that are safe and well safe they're hopefully safe but are good for the planet and better for the planet but is the packaging sustainable is the person making it paid well do they pay the people they work with well so it's all of those different layers okay okay understandable yeah because sustainability ethical all means different things so yeah thank you for sharing that so the last of thing course. I ask um, of, for people who on this lovely podcast uh, is the best thing or a testimonial people say about your work or what or what you do or a good comment or anything. I always cringe having to talk about myself and think about things people say. But you have to, come on, you got to big up yourself. I have to sometimes. think. You I've so got to big up work? myself. I think. I can't think of a specific comment, but I think what people do say and what stays with me is they love working with me. They think I'm a great boss. They think I am 
a person that is fun to work with and really cares about the well-being of the people that I work with, along with doing great sustainable projects that help a lot of people and have a positive impact. So I think it's just that's the highest compliment I can be paid is that I'm a great person to work with that they respect and they feel that I'm looking after them. Okay, that's a very nice thing to say, isn't it? That's a very, um, very warming and very reassuring thing to say. So obviously is going to be in the show notes. So where do people find you and your creative endeavours? Find me at Brianna Pagado on Instagram. You can find Fringe of Colour at fringeofcolour.co.uk and also on Instagram at Fringe of Colour. You can find We Are Here Scotland at We Are Here Scotland Kick on Instagram, CIC. Um, And you can also, another piece of work I do is I support an organization called the Black Queer Travel Guide that supports Black queer folk traveling internationally to travel more safely. It's a mobile phone app and a digital platform that's working to build a network of travelers and support activists and ambassadors all over the world to reinvest into Black queer business. You can check that out at blackqueertravelguide.com too. Yeah, and sorry I didn't talk about it, about Black queer businesses, uh, just for time, but why is it so important to invest and really champion Black queer businesses? I know know this sounds stupid, but I'm just going to ask. Yeah, It's so important because when you think about how marginalised groups are and how marginalized people are it's like being black is already being marginalized being queer is even more so and it's often these black queer businesses that aren't just businesses they're hubs for the community they're safe spaces they are mutual aid pots for people especially in a world where it's still illegal to be gay in over 70 countries Mm. so actually you know and, and queerness being illegal is a modern thing. You know, you look back in history, there were, you know, non-binary and kind of gender fluid people. There were queer people throughout history, like centuries back. So it's just really interesting to think that this is really modern. And so it's so important to invest in these businesses because they're often doing so much deeper, more important work and are often holding down communities of people to keep not only communities safe, but shaping culture, shaping fashions, shaping society in a way that rarely, rarely gets recognized. So yeah, definitely support Black queer businesses. No, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, definitely because, you know, investing with your money says a lot. Yeah. And that sustainability and getting people to, you know, to be safe, to travel and live their dreams like anyone else. I think that's where the equity and it's like, oh, I have positive, positive affirmations. I'm not, sorry, positive, um, not affirmations, I'm saying positive. Um, Vibes. No, no, when they say like, when they try to get people like black people to go up, like, not not positive, like positive discrimination or something, you know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah, like, yeah, but it's yeah. not that, it's just making it like, more equal you know some yeah. lots of different parts of the race you know not everyone starts at the start line you know what I mean Gotta make wealth sure has been taken of, redistributed you know, yeah <laughs> that is what it comes down to you know the western world wouldn't exist without and I know people get tired of hearing this but the western world would not exist without the free labor that went into building it so just reinvest that money back to the people that did it <laughs> that's all oh, we that, ask that's all that's all that's all well, thank you very much for that, for being part thank of the podcast, you. Brianna. Um, yeah, so this is the Creative Free Podcast. Just look at the show notes, connect with her, connect with me, and we will speak soon. Speak Next soon. Week. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Black Creative Handbook, your handbook for success, the manual, what you need to get there. Keep on working with us. Please share, comment, rate us. Just help us out. We help you, you help us. We're a family. Speak soon, next time, same time, next week. Show everybody love.